Genetics. The language of the genes. The invisible biological instructions that define who you are. And the study of a mystifying molecule called DNA. But what is it all about? How can a molecule be a code? What does it mean when our genes tell us that we are 50% banana, yet only 4% Neanderthal? It's time to strip back the science. In this special podcast, we explain some common genetics terms, we meet a highly unusual creature from beneath the sea floor, and a family of prize winning furry friends. Welcome to the Naked Scientist's Guide to Genetics. Enrico Cohen is the president of the Genetics Society. He seemed the perfect person to ask, what is DNA? Okay, so DNA is basically a very long molecule that carries all the hereditary information or the bulk of the hereditary information that we transmit from parents to children for all organisms, be they humans, cows, mice, bacteria, they all have this molecule that is carrying the hereditary information. But how can a molecule be a code? How can there be information in a chemical? So the molecule carries, it's like a very long string that carries a sequence of four different types of subunits that are like letters. So they're often referred to as A, G, C, and T. And the sequence of these letters is specific to each DNA molecule. So every individual will have a particular sequence of these letters. And just as words and sequence of letters in a book can carry information and can determine the meaning of the book, so a lot of the meaning of organisms or the information that's needed for organisms to develop is carried in this long molecule. So that's it. DNA is a chemical that has four different components. When these components, which are called nucleotides, but we think of them as letters, are arranged in a long chain, they spell out a code. But never mind DNA, I've also heard of genetic information. So what is a gene? A gene is basically a short stretch of DNA that carries information usually to create or code for a particular product, such as a protein. So it's a sort of convenient unit of the DNA, just as a word is a convenient unit when we want to think about letters or a sentence is another convenient unit. So when we look at DNA, we think in terms of certain units that make sense in terms of their own structure. And a gene is basically a unit of that kind. The structure of DNA is the same in every plant and animal, but the sequence of genes is not the same. This means that there is a lot we can learn by comparing DNA between species, as I found out on a visit to University College London. If you think about DNA, it's billions of bases long, and so there are billions of characters that can be used to help us find groups of more closely or less closely related animals. Max Telford, from the Department of Genetics, Evolution and Environment. If we think about morphological characters, we can group mammals together because they all share hair and lactation. In the same way, DNA has characters, A, C's, G's and T's, which are inherited and they change and the changes are inherited as well. So if we get a change in an ancestor of a specific group from an A to a C, then that change will be inherited by all the descendants of that group and will act as a marker for the members of that group all being more closely related to each other than they are to the things that still have an A. In your work, you're looking at the differences between the nucleotide sequence of lots of different animals. What kind of animals are you comparing? Well, we're interested in fairly deep relationships. So we're looking at big groups, so the phyla of animals, that's things like annelids and arthropods and mollusks and chordates, so really big groups. These emerged about 
550 to 600 million years ago. So they're very ancient relationships. And so we're looking at the relationships between these phyla to see how these major body patterns evolved and the relationships between the different groups. And what have you found? Uh, well, we've looked at different groups, but something we've been working on a lot recently is a single species called Xenotabella bocchi. And Xenotabella is a very simple worm. It was originally classified along with the flatworms. The first studies of Xenotabella looked at its DNA. When they compared it to the same bit of DNA in lots of other animals, it was most similar to the DNA from a bivalve mollusk. So that's something like an oyster or a mussel. And this is very puzzling, and this is when I first started working on Xenotabella. And our hunch was that what had actually happened was this first study of the DNA of Xenotabella, what they'd actually extracted, actually came from something Xenotabella had eaten. In fact, we know that Xenotabella eats bivalve mollusks. And so our first experiment was to repeat this DNA extraction, and before we did it, to remove the gut of Xenotabella. And when we did that, we didn't find any mollusk DNA. We actually found to our surprise, that Xenotabella was most closely related to a group called the deuterostomes. And this is quite exciting because deuterostomes includes the chordates, and we are chordates, so the vertebrates are part of the chordate phylum. I asked Max if he could show me this strange-sounding creature. Ah, so this is a Xenotabella you're showing me now. What a weird thing. This is like a white, squidgy, flat worm thing. What on earth is this that we're looking at? Well, you're right. It looks very, very simple, and, and it is very simple. It looks rather flatworm-like. It's sort of defined more by what it lacks than what it has. It doesn't have a through gut, so it doesn't have a separate mouth and anus, as most bilaterally symmetrical animals do, so it seems to have lost this. It comes from the common ancestor of the hemichordates, echinoderms, and the chordates. And this we know because all those groups have gill slits, must have possessed gill slits, and Xenotabella doesn't have gill slits, so these are another character it's lost. And it's got a very, very simple nervous system. It's more like a nerve net, similar in a sense to what you find in a jellyfish, rather than the central nervous system we find in many of the other deuterostomes. We collect Xenotabella in Sweden, which is where they were first described. So they're at the bottom of the only fjord in Sweden, which most people think there's lots there, I certainly used to, but all the other fjords are in Norway. So they live in the mud about 60 to 100 metres down, where there is a plentiful supply of these bivalve mollusks they eat. And we go to a marine station called Kristineberg on the west coast of Sweden, on the edge of this fjord. We go out on a boat and dredge mud up from the bottom and search through the mud, and uh, this is where they're found. It's a very, very simple thing. It's lacking an awful lot of very important features. It's got a very simple brain, and yet the DNA is here telling us that this is more similar to us than to the other worms, the mollusks, things that, in the case of something like an octopus, would have a much more complicated brain. The DNA is telling us it's related to these complex animals, and yet it's much more simple. And in fact, that's something we're trying to understand now. We know the morphology is very simple, and we know this must mean that they've lost a lot of characters. And so looking at the genome, is there a, a sort of connection between the morphological simplification and an equivalent simplification of the genome? Has it lost lots of genes um, and which genes has it lost? And can we associate those with the morphological characters it's lost? So that's something we're working on now. But it's not just the DNA of weird and wonderful creatures that we can study. Mark Thomas at University College London compares human DNA sequences. In particular, he looks at variation in the genes for enzymes that can break down drugs. There are a number of enzymes. We broadly call them detoxification enzymes. 
And the reason they're there is that, in fact, plants produce a whole arsenal of toxic compounds because they don't really want to be eaten. And so we've evolved a whole range of enzymes to deal with those toxic compounds. And it just so happens that those also manage to break down many, many pharmaceutical drugs. In a number of studies, we've tried to understand what differences there are in different populations, because that's going to have an effect on which drugs work well in different populations. Are you looking at any specific types of populations here, or do you have a a large sample of DNA samples from around the world? The field is looking all around the world. We have a particular interest in Africa because we've been interested in population history in Africa for a number of years. And as a result, we have quite a large collection of DNA samples from different African populations. Do you see that the knowledge that you're getting from this could affect the different drugs that are prescribed around the continent? It contributes to that, yes. Building up a better picture of the genetic differences between different people and how that affects whether drugs work well whether they don't work because that person just gets rid of them quickly, whether they're actually very toxic because that person can't get rid of them hardly at all. These are obviously important. They make a big difference to to the outcomes of giving people drugs, and drugs are very important, obviously, in health. I think a figure that was quoted to me a number of years ago was that the fourth biggest killer of people in hospitals in the developed world is a bad reaction to a pharmaceutical drug. Wow. Which is you know, staggering, but obviously you can't throw the baby out of the bathwater and say, okay, let's not use the pharmaceutical drugs because then, you know, by far and away, the biggest cause of deaths in hospitals will be failure to give people a drug that would save them. But clearly, you know, there are risks with drugs because a lot of them are very powerful and because there are big differences in how well people can handle those drugs. And we know that a lot of that is genetic, and so understanding the genetics of why people are different in how they respond to those drugs is obviously important. Now, we've heard about DNA and genes, but a common picture to illustrate genetics articles is of X-shaped structures, often in pairs. I wanted to find out more about what these pictures show. Humans have around 20,000 to 25,000 genes. All of these genes together are known as the genome. Each gene is made up of thousands of letters of DNA, so that's a very, very long molecular chain, which has to fit inside a dedicated structure of the cell called the nucleus. This presents unique problems. DNA basically has two main problems. One of them is the packaging, and the other one is basically it has to be accessible. Eugenio Sanchez-Moran at the University of Birmingham. Here, he explains the scale of the problem and introduces us to a way of packaging DNA in a structure called the chromosome. If we think the nucleus is a mini, a car, and with the same size of the mini uh, the nucleus will be, if we extend the DNA that we have in our cells, it will extend for over 150 miles more or less, from Birmingham to South Sea. That's always how I put that example because it makes me laugh. But it's not only the packaging. It actually needs to be accessible. And it needs to be accessible because the DNA needs to have key biological processes. We need the replication of the DNA when the cells are dividing. We need to repair that DNA. So DNA is the only biomolecule that it needs to be repaired because we cannot just exchange it because it contains all the information that our cells need. 
And then obviously it has to do different divisions like mitosis, uh, that cell cycle division, or meiosis just to produce uh, gametes. So the DNA actually has to be really accessible to do all these biological processes. So a chromosome is a way of packaging DNA to get around those problems? Yeah. A good example too is if you think about when you're going on holidays, you normally pack your clothes in different uh, suitcases. So basically nature has found this way of compact all this information in chromosomes to be able to move them and separate them in a proper dynamic way and with a proper order. That's fantastic. So these sort of X-shaped chromosomes that people might be familiar with are nature's mm-hmm. way of, of packing all its DNA ready to go on holiday. That's fantastic, image. I love that. Yeah, yeah. And, and to, be able to, to be able to divide it in between two. Nature has been trying to correct and to actually come with an answer for these two problems is the same one. It's just producing what we call chromatin. Chromatin is the combination of DNA and the proteins that it tightly wraps around. Lots of chromatin makes a chromosome, and lots of chromosomes make you. Different organisms, they have different number of chromosomes. Early on in evolution, so bacteria will have only one molecule of DNA, that it will be just one chromosome, whereas later in evolution, we will have more complex uh, associations. So instead of one molecule, we will have our DNA divided in different molecules that they will produce different chromosomes. What aspect of chromosomes are you looking into? I'm quite interested in chromatin, so trying to see how this compaction of the DNA is done by the association of different proteins, especially from the point of view of DNA repair and recombination. In our case, we are working with plants, so we are really interested about uh, food security and, and how we can produce crops for the future because we are going into the next 50 years to uh, dark years and where we know we are going to have enough food to feed the world. So anything that we can use for plant breeders to make sure that we will have enough production of crops, it will be more than welcome. So are you looking at the way that chromosomes come together and how they're compacted so that you can look at ways to avoid mistakes being made in the division of DNA so that crop production would be much more efficient and things wouldn't go wrong? Yeah, especially in the stages of meiotic division where we produce gametes, basically that is correlated with the fertility of the plants. So if we are thinking about crops like barley or wheat, we need that they are proper fertile so we've got enough grain to produce the food. If something goes wrong with this compaction of DNA of chromosomes or, or the recombination of chromosomes in meiosis, the plants are going to be semi-sterile or infertile and they won't produce enough crops. We have been analyzing with different stresses like temperature where we can see that it has an effect into the fertility of the crops and, and it has an effect, obviously, in the chromosome uh, segregation. Okay, and how do you look at chromosome condensation? What kind of techniques are you using? We mostly use microscopy from normal staining of the DNA to a specific staining of different DNA sequences so we can analyze and distinguish different chromosomes and chromosome locations. We do quite a lot of immunolocalization. We use antibodies against some of these uh, proteins or components of the chromatin or the chromosomes and trying to see where they are localized on the chromosome and how is the dynamics of these proteins during the cell cycle and uh, chromosome division. (laughs) 
So, we've heard about DNA, genes and chromosomes. Let's now look at how all of these units of information get passed around. Genetic inheritance was studied by the monk Gregor Mendel in 1865. Without knowing about DNA, he saw that you could predict what would happen when you breed plants with different colours and different shapes. To find out more about genetic inheritance, I went to Deepest Darkest Hertfordshire to meet a researcher and a few furry friends. My name's Nellie Brewer. I'm a PhD student at Rothamsted Research in Harpenden, but in my spare time I also happen to breed fancy rats. And we're here today at Merriment Rattery, which is the rattery that I run in my living room in Hertfordshire. And who have we got joining us here? Well, in this cage that we're looking at today, we have, in the hammock, we have my old lady's porridge and pudding. And then next we have Figs, who's down here on the ladder. I think she's a bit sleepy. And her daughter, Blousey. And then we have Twinkle here, who's a really lovely rat. She's won lots of prizes at shows because <laughs> she's a really sweet girl. Then we have Herdwick here, who's another of my old ladies. They look very cosy in their hammock. They do really like their hammocks and they all pile in and all sleep together no matter how small the hammock is. And then down at the bottom of the cage here, we have Baby, who's having a snack. And if we just get Shine and Glimmer out now to uh, join us for the interview. Come on then, ladies. Rats have 21 chromosomes and then they have a copy of every single one of those chromosomes making 42 and of each chromosome pair they inherit one from their mother and one from their father which is very much like in humans only we have a few more chromosomes within each chromosome you have genes meaning that all rats have two copies of every gene but those two copies are not always identical so a good example in humans is eye color so there are eye color genes that are identical meaning that some of us have blue eyes and some of us have brown eyes and is that the same in rats we've got different eye colors so in rats absolutely it's very similar that there are genes in rats where different copies produce different eye colors normally pink or black so here we have shine and Shine is a black-eyed Martin. And then we have Glimmer, who is a pink-eyed Martin. And what does Martin mean? So Martin is just the variety of fancy rat that I breed. We think it's caused by a mutation in the tyrosinase gene in rats. And the tyrosinase gene is responsible in its normal form for the formation of melanin, which is the pigment that colours a rat's coat and eyes. So in a normal rat, in a normal black or brown rat, they've got normal function of the tyrosinase gene. And so they have dark fur and black eyes. But in the Martin, what happens is some of the pigment gets stripped out. And so you end up with a rat that has very dark grey fur and pink eyes. A mutation is a change in the DNA sequence of a gene. This can be as little as one DNA letter that has changed compared to normal. Mutations produce different versions of a single gene, and these different versions are called alleles. There are already two other tyrosinase mutations known in fancy rats and mice, so those are the albino mutation, which probably most people are very familiar with because that's what causes your pink-eyed white lab rat, um, but also there's the Himalayan allele, which causes a rat which is pale coloured for most of its body, but then on its points, so its extremities, which are its nose and feet, um, it has colour. So who are Glimmer and Shine's parents? What colour eyes did they have? Twinkle is their mother and she has black eyes and Hamilton is their father who has pink eyes. And so the reason why Glimmer has pink eyes is because she's inherited the pink eye from her father and then her mother, she's got two different copies of the same gene. So one copy is black-eyed and one copy is pink-eyed. And so she's given the pink-eyed copy of her eye colour gene to Glimmer, but she's given the black-eyed copy to Shine. And that's why Shine is black-eyed and Glimmer is pink-eyed. 
And so the black-eyed is dominant to the pink-eyed. And so yes. even if you've got one copy of each, you get black rather so than pink. in martin rats, who already have two copies of the martin mutation, if you then add the black-eyed mutation over the top, yeah, you only need one copy of the black-eyed mutation to create a black-eyed rat. So Glimmer has two copies of the pink-eyed gene. Yeah. And, oh, my microphone is being attacked by a rat. Oh, is he cheeky. And Shine has one copy of the pink-eyed gene and one of black. In science, we would refer to uh, Shine being heterozygous for the black eye mutation because she has two different copies of the gene, whereas Glimmer is homozygous because both her copies of the gene are for pink eyes. Homo meaning the same and hetero meaning different versions of of the gene or alleles. A dominant allele is one that has an overpowering effect over another allele, in this case black eye colour over pink. The pink eye allele is recessive, which means the rat must inherit it from both parents to have pink eyes, just like Glimmer. Some people may be familiar with the terms genotype and phenotype. What here is the genotype and what is the phenotype? Absolutely, so if a rat has got one black eye allele of the eye colour gene and one pink eye allele of the eye colour gene, then genotypically that rat is heterozygous, so it's got one of each of the alleles, but actually phenotypically what you see is a black-eyed rat. And so its phenotype is black-eyed, but its genotype is one copy pink eye, one copy black eye. Should we take them back to their cage now? They've had quite a run around. Should we go and have a, have a look at where they live? A bit tuckered out. Hello, everybody. Oh, look at them. They're all peering out of the hammock, waiting for their, their friends to return. You've got Porridge, who is an albino rat. So there's your example of epistasis there. Now, here's a term you may be less familiar with, epistasis. Nellie explains. Albinism in rats is really interesting. It's what we call epistatic, which means that it masks the effect of any other possible colour mutations that are there. So it doesn't matter if the rat underneath the albino mutation is black or brown or hooded or striped or spotted, the rat will appear white with pink eyes. And there's no way to know without breeding on from it exactly what's going on underneath the albinism. So if you have the albino mutation, it doesn't matter what other mutations you have in terms of eye colour? No, absolutely, in terms of eye colour and coat colour. So long as you have two copies of the albino mutation, because it's recessive, so if you just have one copy, it doesn't make any difference to the rat. But if you have two copies, you always end up with a white rat with pink eyes, no matter what's going on underneath. And you mentioned the other forms of the tyrosinase gene, the other alleles of the tyrosinase gene. Do we have any, any Himalayans in we here? We don't have any Himalayans anymore. I did used to have a Himalayan, but fortunately not anymore. But we do actually have a couple of rats who are rather odd looking. You can see Baby here. Now, Baby is a Martin. I think she's taken offence at being called rather odd looking. She's beautiful. So Baby is a Martin. So you can see she's got the grey fur and pink eyes and the face markings. But you can see that she's also got dark brown points on her nose and feet. And this is because she's a heterozygote. She's got one copy of the Martin allele of the tyrosinase gene and one copy of the Himalayan allele. So she's kind of a bit of a Franken rat, a, a glue together. And she's half and half of each of these different varieties, which produces what we call a pointed Martin. Does that make her a prize winner or does she get excluded? (laughs) Unfortunately, it means that she gets excluded from the varieties class because she's not supposed to have these points on her feet and nose, but she has done incredibly well in the pet class because she's a very affectionate, engaging rat. (laughs) You and I look very different to a monkey's favourite squishy fruit. A human doesn't ripen and go off within a few days. So, what does it mean to be 50% banana? 
Welcome to Material Chef, preparing the most influential genetic materials for your delectation. To prepare one human, you will need three billion letters of DNA, split into 20,000 genes and divided into 23 pairs of chromosomes. To make a banana, you will need 500 million letters of DNA, split into 11 pairs of chromosomes. Stop! This doesn't make any sense. Where does this 50% number come from? What are we comparing? Letters, genes or chromosomes? In this case, the answer is to look at our genes. Half of the genes that we need are also needed by bananas. And that's not as surprising as it might sound. Most genes are required for the day-to-day processes that keep cells alive. And these same processes occur in bananas. The other half of our genes make us specifically human. And bananas will have many other genes that make them specifically plant. Remember, it's 50% of our genes compared with bananas, not 50% of banana genes compared with humans. Only 2% of your genes are not found in chimpanzees. 20% of your genes are not found in the genomes of cows. So, odds are, you share far more than 4% of your genome with the now-extinct Neanderthal. All those processes that keep you going, they'll have had them too. All those genes that we share with the modern apes, yep, Neanderthals would have needed those as well. But when the genetic sequence of Neanderthals was first worked out, chunks of Neanderthal DNA were found to be shared with European and Asian people, but not Africans. Early humans, they think, may have bred with Neanderthals when they migrated out of Africa. You can get tests now to see how much of your DNA came from this historic breeding. 1-4% to of your genome could be uniquely Neanderthal, rather than of human origin. But remember, there are other genes that make us uniquely human, and many genes we share. So, modern Africans share all those common genes that make humans and Neanderthals so similar. Europeans have extra genetic variation that came from cozying up with our ancient cousins. Genetics, the language of the genes, the study of a mystifying molecule called DNA. It's truly a subject of surprises. If you'd like to learn more about genetics and the study of DNA, you can subscribe for free to the Naked Genetics podcast. With thanks to Enrico Cohen, Max Telford, Mark Thomas, Eugenio Sanchez-Moran and Nelly Brewer. And enormous thanks to the Genetics Society. <laughs>